All right, we're going to dig right in. We're going to open our Bible, and we're going to see what we can find from God's Word. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 10? And we want to get the... Uh, uh, the um, first slides up here, and I'm not just sure which of these, this is not my computer, so I'm not sure which of these I am supposed to hit for our first slide. All right, it is up, but I'm not seeing it up here on mine, okay? that right? Good enough. It's good enough. Hebrews chapter 9. Just going to start it out with a brief verse here. Verse 24. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. My question tonight is very simple and very basic. What is Christ doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary that makes a difference in the way I live my life right now. In other words, if he weren't doing this, how would my life be different today than it is? What is he doing that changes the way I live a daily life today? What, make, what difference does it make that he is in the heavenly sanctuary? Came across this statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 357 and 358. The blood of Christ, while it was to release the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law, was not to cancel the sin. It would stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement. In that one sentence, you have read something you will never read or hear outside of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Because most Christians believe that when you confess a sin... It's gone, never to be seen or heard of again. It has been wiped off the record books. But this says, no, it's not to cancel the sin. The sin, the record of sin, will stand on record until the final atonement. Two words you will never hear outside the Seventh-day Adventist church. Because most Christians believe that the atonement was completed on the cross with no more that needs to be done after Jesus said, it is finished. It's all over. Nothing more needs to be added. She continues, Then by virtue of the atoning blood of Christ, the sins of all the truly penitent will be blotted from the books of heaven. Thus the sanctuary will be freed or cleansed from the record of sin. In the type, this great work of atonement or blotting out of sins was represented by the services of the Day of Atonement the cleansing of the earthly sanctuary. So obviously we're going to be talking about the cleansing that goes along with the Day of Atonement in the earthly sanctuary. Now I'm going to share with you something that um, comes from way back about 60 or more years ago in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'll even tell you who I'm reading from. I don't recommend you read from him today. His name is Robert Brinsmead. But this is not the Robert Brinsmead of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. It's the Robert Brinsmead of the 50s and 60s. A quite different individual. Listen to what he said. The concept of the final atonement is the one and only contribution that Adventists have made in Christian theology. Think about that. We didn't contribute the Sabbath. We had to be talked into it by a Seventh-day Baptist. We didn't contribute the state of man and death. That had been decided before we got on the scene by some. We didn't contribute the literal coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven with no secret rapture preceding that. All of these had been taught somewhere by someone at some time and we just put them together in a package. 
but final atonement? Not going to hear about that by Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley. Final atonement is totally unique to Seventh-day Adventism. It's our one and only contribution. And he said there must be a refusal to be embarrassed with this peculiar teaching. Oh, my. We've gotten embarrassed. We have gotten embarrassed because we have been hit so hard for teaching that there is more that needs to be done after the cross of Jesus Christ. We are denigrating the cross, we are told. We are saying that wasn't enough. And we have to have some kind of final atonement before the plan of salvation can be completed. Therefore, how can you denigrate the cross like that? We have been hit very hard theologically by the evangelical Christian world when we say that there is something that has to be done before the great controversy can be finished and the plan of salvation completed. In fact, I've come across a few statements that are kind of interesting in our, the very book that we use to define our beliefs these days called Seventh-day Adventist Believe is this sentence, the atonement or reconciliation was completed on the cross. Now, they explain a little more, and it isn't so bad when you read the whole thing, but it still is very confusing just to say that. Another individual uh, said this, It is crucial for believers to understand and embrace the absolutely finished work of atonement on the cross. This is an Adventist minister. The absolutely finished work of atonement on the cross. We're having a hard time with this. We have gotten embarrassed by this peculiar teaching. And then Robert Brinsmead continued, Many now teach that the saints will not be sinless until the second advent of Christ. But such a teaching must result in casting aside the doctrine of a cleansed sanctuary before Jesus comes. It must lead to a rejection of the final atonement in the most holy place and the special sealing to take place in the minds of the 144,000. Have you noticed about Seventh-day Adventist teaching? If you pull out one piece, other pieces come with it. This is a very connected system and if we don't believe in one part of what is going to happen when Jesus returns to this earth, some very, uh, some very important parts also disappear at this time. And so we've got to be really, really careful. A couple of statements by Ellen White on this point. This is from Early Writings, page 254. The minds of all who embrace this message, now that word all is important because that means all of us are directed to the most holy place where Jesus stands before the ark making his final intercession for all those for whom mercy still lingers. The minds of all of us are to be directed where? To the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary so we can see what is happening and bring it down to our level. Testimonies, Volume 5, 575. All, there's that word again, all, need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above. Yes, we believe in the atoning sacrifice completed when Jesus said it is finished, but that's not the end of the story. That is not the end of God's great plan of salvation. There is something going on in the sanctuary above. Now listen to this. When this grand truth, Ellen White doesn't talk about many truths in that exact way. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God and their efforts will be successful. Amen. Have you heard about finishing the work? How are we going to finish the work that God has assigned to us if we do not know what's happening up in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place? When this grand truth, she says, is seen and understood, our efforts will be successful. We've got to think very, very carefully about that. Now, nothing, and I mean nothing that I am going to say tonight is in any way new light or new truth. It has all been really carefully written and preached in years past, but it may sound new because we aren't hearing much about it. I don't read many Sabbath school quarterly lessons on the final atonement. I don't see many major camp meeting presentations on it. I don't see many seminars happening on the final atonement. 
And I think we're kind of missing something very important. So I'm going to go back, and again, going back 50 or 60 years, this time to another individual, and let's just see what happens here. The sanctuary service written by M. L. Andreasen way back, way back when most of us weren't around, a few of us were. And the last and the next to the last chapter of this book is, I believe, the most comprehensive, the clearest presentation on the final atonement that I have ever read. And we're going to be going through a few of the statements in that chapter, and I'll make some comments along the way as we go. All right, now we're set. The final demonstration of what the gospel can do in and for humanity is still in the future. Christ showed the way. He took a human body and in that body demonstrated the power of God. Men are to follow his example and prove that what God did in Christ, he can do in every human being who submits to him. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Or do you believe that Christ's example was just unique because he was a unique being and we really can't be like that? Which is much what most of the Christian world believes. To prove that what God did in Christ, he can do in every human being who submits to him. The world, he says, is awaiting this demonstration. Well, you mean the world is still not seeing real Christianity? I don't think they are. You know, when we talk to people, and particularly in non-Christian areas of the world, and we try to persuade them that Christianity is the answer, sometimes we get very interesting responses. Mahatma Gandhi said this, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Isn't that a tragic response to what we have tried to show as Christianity. They have seen Christianity in political terms. They have seen Christianity in lowering standards. They have seen Christianity in wars. But have they seen the Christ of Christianity? Another little interesting anecdote. Juan is a very precocious 12-year-old. He reads his Quran regularly and he prays five times a day. He takes part in religious discussions at the local mosque and is a moving force among the young people there. I asked him if he had always been a Muslim. No, I used to belong to a Christian church here in Cuba, he told me. What about your family, I asked. Well, they are still going to that church, but they are also sometimes coming to the mosque with me. Why did you decide to become a Muslim, I asked. He looked at me very seriously and said, I was looking for a religion that had higher standards and clear answers to my questions. And again, I say, how tragic. How tragic that he had no answers to the questions that he needed to have. And he was looking for high standards. And he wasn't finding them in the Christians he came across. In other words... I would have to lower my standards if I joined your church or your group. I believe this, is, this statement is correct. The world is awaiting this demonstration. When it has been accomplished, the end will come. God will have fulfilled his plan. He will have shown himself true and Satan a liar. His government will stand vindicated. That's a very important concept that we've got to take a look at here. The plan of salvation must of necessity include not only forgiveness of sin, but complete restoration. Salvation from sin is more than forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness presupposes sin and is conditioned upon breaking with it. Sanctification is separation from sin and indicates deliverance from its power and victory over it. The first is a means to neutralize the effect of sin. The second is a restoration of power for complete victory. And that, as best I can tell, is what makes Adventist gospel unique. Because it's talking about restoration, not just forgiveness. Thus it shall be with the last generation of men. And by the way, when M. L. Andreasen uses the word men, back in those days it was a generic term to mean men and women, mankind. Understand that. Thus it shall be with the last generation of men living on the earth. Through them God's final demonstration of what He can do with humanity will be given. He will take the weakest of the weak, those bearing the sins of their forefathers, and in them show the power of God. 
They will be subjected to every temptation, but they will not yield. They will demonstrate that it is possible to live without sin, the very demonstration for which the world has been looking and for which God has been preparing. It will become evident to all that the gospel really can save to the uttermost. God is found true in His sayings. Can the gospel really save to the uttermost? Can it really change us from the inside out? It is in the last generation of men living on the earth that God's power unto sanctification will stand fully revealed. The demonstration of that power is God's vindication. My friends, we don't vindicate God. God vindicates Himself in His last generation. It clears him of any and all charges which Satan has placed against him. In the last generation, God is vindicated and Satan defeated. This may need, he says, some further amplification. The demonstration which God intends to make with the last generation means much, both to the people and to God. Can God's law really be kept? That is a vital question. In fact, that was the first question that Lucifer challenged God on. Your law is unnecessary. We angels can figure things out very well by ourselves. Many deny that it can be done. Virtually the whole Christian world says, because we can't keep it, Jesus kept it and places His obedience to our account. Others glibly say it can. Now, could that be us, folks? Do we say too quickly? Yes, the law can be kept. Well, how did we do yesterday? Or last week? Or the week before that? When the whole question of commandment keeping is considered, the problem assumes large proportions. God's law is exceedingly broad. It takes cognizance of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It judges motives as well as acts, thoughts as well as words. Commandment keeping means entire sanctification, a holy life, unswerving allegiance to right, entire separation from sin and victory over it. Well, may mortal man cry out, who is sufficient for these things? If you haven't asked that question, I don't know what planet you're living on. Who can do that? Who is sufficient for these things? Yet, to produce a people that will keep the law is the task which God has set Himself and which He expects to accomplish. Notice that once again. This is His job. I can't do it. You can't do it. And the church leadership can't do it. It's going to be a miracle of God if anything like this happens. When the statement and challenge are issued by Satan, no one can keep the law. It's impossible. If there be any that can do it or that have done it, show them to me. Where are they that keep the commandments? And I love this. God will quietly, quietly answer, here they are. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. And the faith of Jesus. Won't that be a day when God can say that? You know the best he can say right now? Here are they that want to keep the commandments of God. Here are they that believe they want that in the commandments of God. Here are they that profess to keep the commandments of God. Well, what a day when God can say here they are. Satan, take a look. Universe, take a look. This is going to be the wonder of the universe for the rest of eternity that God can do something like that. When God commands men to keep His law, it does not serve the purpose He has in mind to have only a few men keep it, just enough to show it can be done. It is not in line with God's character to pick outstanding men of strong purpose and superb training and demonstrate through them what He can do. It is much more in harmony with His plan to make His requirements such that even the weakest need not fail, so that none can ever say that God demands that which can be done by only a few. It is for this reason that God has reserved His greatest demonstration for the last generation. This generation bears the results of accumulated sins. If any are weak, they are. If any suffer from inherited tendencies, they do. If any have an excuse because of weakness of any kind, they have. If therefore these can keep the commandments, there is no excuse for anyone in any other generation not doing so also. You know, God does that, doesn't He? Doesn't He wait until the things are as bad as they can possibly be so there's no way that a human being can take credit for getting, him, getting us out of the mess we're in? 
when Israel was between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, that's when God's power could be seen. And today, the weakest of the weak. Morally, folks, this generation is the weakest of the weak. And we're part of this generation. And this is the one that God is looking for. This will be the miracle of all times. God is ready for the challenge. He has bided his time. The supreme exhibition has been reserved until the final contest. Out of the last generation, God will select his chosen ones, not the strong or the mighty, not the honored or rich, not the wise or the learned, but common, ordinary people will God take and through and by them make his demonstration. Satan has claimed that those who in the past have served God have done so for mercenary motives, that God has pampered them, and that he, Satan, has not had free access to them. If he were given full permission to press his case, they also would be won over. But he charges that God is afraid to let him do this. Give me a fair chance, Satan says, and I will win out. And so, to silence forever Satan's charges... To make it evident that his people are serving him from motives of loyalty and right without reference to reward. We need to think more about our motivation for being Christians. Not even just Seventh-day Adventists, for being Christians. We need to think about why we're in this business of Christianity. Let's do a what if. What if there were no promises in the Bible about a beautiful new earth? and places that we would live in, and non-ending joy and happiness. What if all the Bible said was that you'll live a happier life, you will be more fulfilled, you will enjoy life more if you do it the way I ask you to do it, than if you don't? Would we be Christians? For three score years and ten, because we believe God's way is best. Would we be Christians if there were no reward at the end? That's the real question. I hope we would be. I hope we're not here just so we can go to heaven as much as we want to go to heaven. But I think there are bigger reasons than that. To make it evident that his people are serving him for motives of loyalty and right without reference to reward. To clear his own name and character of the charges of injustice and arbitrariness. And to show to angels and men that his law can be kept by the weakest of men under the most discouraging and most untoward circumstances. God permits Satan in the last generation to try his people to the utmost. They will be threatened, tortured, persecuted. They will stand face to face with death in the issue of the decree to worship the beast and his image, but they will not yield. They are willing to die rather than to sin. Oh, I want that experience. When we come to that experience, we will be so close to walking straight into the kingdom that it'll just be one step removed. Will they stand the test? To human eyes, it seems impossible. If only God would come to their rescue, all would be well. They are determined to resist the evil one. If need be, they will die, but they will not sin. Satan has no power and never has had to make any man sin. Are we clear on that? He does not have any power. He's a defeated foe. It is only because we believe his lies that we think he's so powerful. He can tempt. He can seduce. He can threaten, but he cannot compel. And now God demonstrates through the weakest of the weak that there is no excuse and never has been any for sinning. If men in the last generation can successfully repel Satan's attack, if they can do this with all the odds against them and the sanctuary closed, what excuse is there for men's ever sinning? Why does Jesus step out of the heavenly sanctuary? Why does he close down the work of forgiving sins to make it harder for us? No, the issue is very simple. Who's telling the truth? God says my law is keepable by my power. Satan says you can do what you want. There is no one that can keep your law. It's impossible. And so Jesus Christ will close down that wonderful work of forgiving sins in the heavenly sanctuary so that the whole watching universe can see who's telling the truth and who's lying. That's what it's all about after the close of probation. Who will be vindicated? 
whose credibility will stand. And all Satan has to do, friends, is to get one, just one, of those who are sealed to sin against God, and he proves that God can't be trusted. All he had to do with Jesus Christ was get Christ to sin one time in 33 years, and he wins. Satan has the easiest job in the world, and God has the most incredibly difficult job that can ever be imagined. Who's telling the truth? That's why Jesus steps out of the heavenly sanctuary, because this is the greatest evidence of all time. Have you wondered why affliction will not rise up the second time? Why sin will not occur again? It's not by happenstance. It's because God will have proved the utterly, incredibly impossible reality that human beings, even in fallen natures, can live without sinning. That is the impossible dream, and God will pull it off, I believe, by faith. M. L. Andreasen closed this chapter out with these words. The matter of greatest importance in the universe is not the salvation of men important as that may seem. The most important thing is the cleansing of God's name from the false accusations made by Satan. We've missed that point, haven't we? We have tended to say the most important thing we do, our mission is to save souls. And boy, that's important. I belong to an evangelistic organization and we must go out and reach and save souls. But that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the clearing of God's name from the false accusations made by Satan. The controversy is drawing to a close. God is preparing His people for the last great conflict. Satan is also getting ready. The issue is before us and will be decided in the lives of God's people. God is depending upon us as He did upon Job. Is his confidence well placed? It is a wonderful privilege vouchsafe this people to help clear God's name by our testimony. It is wonderful that we are permitted to testify for him. It must never be forgotten, however, that this testimony is a testimony of life, not merely of words. To give people the light is more than to hand them a tract. Our life is the light. As we live, we give light to others. Without life, without our living the light, our words abide alone. But as our life becomes light, our words become effective. It is our life that must testify for God. And now the conclusion. All this is closely connected with the work of the Day of Atonement. On that day, the people of Israel, having confessed their sins, were completely cleansed. They had already been forgiven. Now sin was separated from them. They were holy and without blame. The camp of Israel was clean. Wouldn't it have been a marvelous thing to be participating in that? The sins of all the Israelites would be placed on the head of the scapegoat, led out into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man, and there was no sin in the camp for about 10 minutes. And then somebody said something, and it all started over again. This time it has to be different, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? We are now living in the great antitypical day of the cleansing of the sanctuary. Every sin must be confessed and by faith be sent beforehand to judgment. As the high priest enters into the most holy, so God's people now are to stand face to face with God. They must know that every sin is confessed, that no stain of evil remains. And now the sentence, the sentence, the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven is dependent upon the cleansing of God's people on earth. Why are we still here, friends, waiting for the coming of Jesus? Why is there this great delay of well over a hundred years in God's plan? Because of what we just read. How can Jesus cleanse the heavenly sanctuary if I'm still pouring a whole bunch of confessions needing handling by the heavenly sanctuary on a regular basis? He would cleanse out the sanctuary, and then I have one more that I need to send up to him. Cleanse that out. You would have another one. You'd send it up to him. Cleanse that one out. Someone else would have another one. When would it ever end? The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is dependent on the cleansing of this heart sanctuary, my friends. And until this is cleansed, that won't be cleansed. That's why there's still a delay. That's why we're still here wondering why Jesus hasn't come. How important then that God's people be holy and without blame. 
In them every sin must be burned out so that they will be able to stand in the sight of a holy God and live with a devouring fire. Well, my friends, there you have the essence of that last, next to last chapter in the book, The Sanctuary Service. The heart and soul of what it means to believe in a final atonement, a special work that God is doing. Came across this uh, sentence from uh, Elder Don Newfeld, former associate editor of the Adventist Review. He said, we should not equate the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary with the investigative judgment. Now, what did he mean by that? Didn't the judgment begin in 1844? And that's what we all believe, that God put the record books in place. And then he said, we should not equate the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary with the investigative judgment. One should instead say, as did Ellen White, that the cleansing of the sanctuary does involve a work of investigation, a work of judgment. Some have not borne this distinction in mind and have made the judgment the major significance of 1844. The judgment is an important event, but the final atonement and the blotting out of sin were the items upon which the ritual on the Day of Atonement focused. In other words, when we hear the term 1844, our first thought should not be investigative judgment. Was there a judgment on the Day of Atonement with a judge in presiding and books of record open? Do you read that anywhere in Leviticus chapter 16? Didn't happen. No judgment. Instead, the whole ritual of the day focused on the high priest going into the most holy place, meeting God face to face, and the one time he did it per year, and then coming out and placing every sin upon the head of the scapegoat so that sin was banished from the camp. It was all about cleansing. It was all about cleansing. Yes, there was judgment involved because if you did not afflict your soul on that day, you were cut off from the camp of Israel. That's judgment. But that was the secondary part of it. We have turned the secondary part, the judgment, into the major part and forgotten about the major part, which is cleansing and purifying. We've gotten the, cart, the horse and the cart all mixed up on this subject. And I believe Elder Neufeld was right, dead right, when he said that we make a mistake when we focus exclusively on the judgment as what, would ha what happened in 1844. Would you take your Bible and turn to Leviticus chapter 16, which is the chapter describing these events on the Day of Atonement. And I just want to read briefly two verses summarizing the whole day and what it was about. Leviticus chapter 16. And we'll look at verse 30. Leviticus 16, verse 30. For on that day, day of atonement, shall the priest make an atonement for you. Are we biblically based when, he said, when we say that something happens on the day of atonement that is atoning? It's right there, isn't it? On that day, he makes an atonement. To cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That's it. That's the meaning of the Day of Atonement. That's the meaning of the final atonement. Now Ellen White said in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 520, We are in the great Day of Atonement and the sacred work of Christ for the people of God that is going on at the present time in the heavenly sanctuary should be our constant study. How are we doing on that, folks? Our constant study, we hardly ever talk about it. We should teach our children what the typical Day of Atonement signified, that it was a special session of great humiliation and confession of sins before God. All right. Living in the Day of Atonement. How does that change the way I live? How does that change my focus? Would you turn one more time, this time to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. How in the world can the book of Ecclesiastes have anything to say about the final atonement? But it does. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. You see, we're not talking about right and wrong here. We're talking about appropriate times. Verse 2. 
Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Is the right time for laughing and dancing at a funeral service? See, appropriateness. Is the right time for weeping and mourning at a wedding? Well, we hope not. <laughs> there is an appropriate time for each thing. Let's see how that might apply. Our children and our non-Adventist Christian friends challenge us on some points that we do. We say as Seventh-day Adventists that we should not use alcohol in any form. And our Christian friends say, wait a minute, that isn't what the Bible says. Didn't Paul tell the elders and deacons not to be given to much wine? Don't get drunk. Didn't he tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake? You Adventists, you always go one step beyond the Bible. The Bible says moderation, you say abstinence. Well, hmm. And then we teach that it is best to have a vegetarian diet. And once again, our friends throw up their hands. Where is that in the Bible? What did Abraham fix for the three strangers walking across the fields toward him? What did the father fix for the prodigal son when he came home? What did Jesus fix for the disciples after he was raised from the dead? There you are, Adventists. You just always go one step beyond the Bible. The Bible says moderation. You say, no, abstinence. Vegetarianism. We say in the Seventh-day Adventist church that we shouldn't wear jewelry. I came across an interesting little statement for, that was written to the Adventist Review. The Bible is more pro-jewelry than anti-jewelry. Job, whom God said was righteous, received several gold rings from relatives. Joseph received a ring and gold chain from Pharaoh. Abraham sent Rebekah a gold ring for her nose, two gold bracelets, and gold and silver jewelry. The Bible is more pro-jewelry than anti-jewelry. There you go, Adventists. Always going one step beyond what the Bible says. And our children ask the same questions. Why? Why? Do we give good answers? Well, the church says. Or the pastor says. Or even Ellen White says. Do those answers really resonate very well? I don't think so. We need to have better answers. So what is the answer? Well, let me try a few other things. The 12 tribes of Israel the 12 tribes that came from Jacob's family. They came out of a model, happy, representative family group, did they not? You have read that story, haven't you? I couldn't fool you on that one. You know, we criticize Jacob. Maybe Jacob's only flaw, if you want to call it that, was he loved Rachel too much. He loved Rachel so much that when his crafty uncle Laban saw that his heart was given to this young lady, this daughter of his, that Laban says, I can get some work out of this young man. We can make a little bargain here. Sure, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. You just work seven years. It'll go just like that. Won't even have to worry about it. She'll be yours. Seven years. Jacob loved Rachel enough. And then the surprise on wedding night. Can you imagine, can you imagine Jacob storming into Laban's tent the next morning? And I mean storming into that tent. But Laban, you see, had this all figured out. He was a very smart individual. And he simply said, Jacob, calm down. Just sit down. Just sit down. Let's talk this out. I understand you're very angry right now. But it's all going to work out. You know, in our custom, it really isn't proper for the younger daughter to be married before the older daughter. That just isn't done these days. You understand that, don't you? And really, this will be just fine anyway, because I will give you both of my daughters. And you will be much more admired in the community to have two wives than one. Your standing will just increase like that. Just seven more years, that's all. Seven more years, okay? And Jacob loves Rachel so much, he agrees to another seven years of service. At the end of that time, he does get Rachel for a wife, but then a very sad story develops. 
Rachel doesn't bear children. Now that's not like in our society where a young couple can decide when and if they're going to have children. If you did not bear children, you were under the curse of God. And Rachel couldn't bear children. Guess who did bear children? Leah, of course, had children, no problem. And can you just imagine the sniping that went on in that household day after day, out there and gathering, bringing the water home from the well? You think you're the favored wife. You think you're the special one. Look, God is cursing you. He's blessing me. And finally, Rachel can't take it anymore. And she comes to Jacob with a request. Sounds strange to us, but in their society, I've got to get this stigma off of my chest. I can't live with it anymore. Jacob, will you take my servant as, your, as my helper wife? And she will bear children and they will be counted as my children. He agrees because he loves Rachel so much. And guess what? The helper wife bears children. The stigma is gone. Rachel is a very a good part of the family once again. No stigma anymore. Guess who's watching from the other side? Leah says, that's two against one, Jacob. That's not fair. If she gets a helper wife, I get a helper wife, Jacob. And Jacob realizes he's caught between a rock and a hard place, and he agrees. Okay, it's only fair. Well, time goes by. Rachel actually bears children. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living in that household? The sniping that goes on between the brothers as to who's the better, who's the favored, who's the right one. Can you see why they were ready to murder? This was an angry group of young people and wives that were involved in this. Now, let me bring you to the end of the story. Where did the 12 tribes of Israel come from? Those 12 struggling, fighting brothers with a marriage relationship that was not fun, I will guarantee you. Whose names will be on the new Jerusalem? Those 12 brothers. Did God bless that polygamous marriage? Did he bring the Messiah out of the descendants of that polygamous marriage? Absolutely he did. Therefore, why shouldn't I have the same privilege of having two wives instead of one? As good as, I, as my wife is, two would be even better. See? Just like in Bible time. And you know, this is not just a, a theoretical. A group of people in our United States have decided that that's the way that they can best serve God, by a polygamous relationship in marriage. The Bible says so. Try another one. If you were in bad shape financially, you had one recourse that you could go to. You could sell yourself as a slave to someone who would take care of your family and pay your debts. But the law said you could only do that for six years, and in the seventh year you would go free. Unless you thought that maybe life is better the way it is now, then you could voluntarily choose to become a slave for life. But that was voluntary, and you would have your ear pierced to show that that was a decision that you made. So, slavery, regulated by God. What you could do, what you couldn't do. And based on that permission, right here where we stand and sit tonight, whole groups of Christians came Sunday by Sunday saying, what do you mean, get rid of our slaves? The Bible says that's the way it's supposed to be. Read it for yourself. Try one more. On the day that... Uh, Moses came down from the mountain and threw those tables of stone down. He said, all who are on the Lord's side, come and stand by me. And a whole tribe joined him, the tribe of Levi. And then what was Moses' next command? By God to those Levites. Take your sword in your hand and kill your apostate brothers and sisters. You know that, what that would be like? By us saying, all who are on the Lord's side right now here in this camp meeting, take your guns and your swords in your hands and go out and kill the apostate Adventists. That would not be too comfortable for us, would it? 
Because these were their brothers and sisters. These were the ones they'd been fellowshipping with. And now they were commanded to go out and kill them. Holy war. Haven't we had some holy wars recently? Based on the right to serve God in the right way. The Bible says so. Well, what do you think? Are you, comf are you comfortable with polygamy today? Are you comfortable with slavery today? Are you comfortable with going out and killing unfaithful people? So, the Bible allowed all those things. So, I'm going to give you a principle right now. Without which, you cannot understand the Bible. Particularly the Old Testament. God allows things. He blesses things. He regulates things. He even commands things that He hates. That do not fit with His character at all. And He does bless them. Why? I am so glad that our God treats us as little children. What if He treated us as adults needing to do and be everything that a thinking adult should do? Would we ever, as, a, as, as Christians, be where we are today? When you were a baby Christian? When you were just trying to sort out what to do, what not to do? Did he not allow some things in your life that you're surprised at right now that you wonder? God treats us as children growing up. We don't expect a two-year-old to know and do what a 17-year-old does. And God treats us like that. They had just come out of slavery. They had come out of darkness. The times were exceedingly difficult. And God says, I understand your culture. I understand what, what you think is right and wrong. I will put laws around them so it isn't too serious. Slavery, for instance, can't be for life. It has to be for a short period of time if that's what you want to do. I will allow, I will regulate and bless things that do not honor my name and that do not bring glory to my kingdom. He does it out of mercy for two reasons. For the hardness of men's hearts and the darkness of the times. And he allows some things to take place that do not vindicate his name. So I'm going to suggest that that is a principle we must keep in mind. How does that apply to alcohol use? Well, alcohol use was allowed in the Bible. It was. But again, remember, in dark times... Is there a text or two in the Bible that give us a hint that that is not God's real will for His people? Even if we didn't have that, take a look at the world around us and what causes the most crime in our world. Alcohol use, the greatest drug that human beings are doing to destroy themselves. And so, how about vegetarianism? Is there a hint or two in the Bible that that's what God wants us to do? Well, how about Genesis 1.29? Let's just start right there. And how about 40 years in the wilderness with a totally vegan diet? Forget about vegetarian. A vegan diet for 40 years. And the only time they, were, they had any other diet, it made them all sick when the quail came on the land. And so I think that's a pretty impressive statement by God. How about Daniel? There is enough evidence. And by the way, how about the new earth? They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Is there a fair amount of evidence there for a vegetarian diet? So once again, hardness of heart and dark times, ignorant times. God did allow some things that he really didn't appreciate. How about jewelry? Well, friends, I think there's some evidence in the Bible on that too, don't you? And I found an interesting thing. In the Old Testament, when idolatry began to increase, guess what else increased? Ah, the things began to be put on. When repentance took place, what went off? Remember Jacob fleeing with his wives out of, his, out of Laban's household? They took with them the teraphim, the idols, and their jewelry. And when they were convinced that the idols should be buried, what did they bury with them? The jewelry. There's enough evidence in the Bible. This is not just something drawn out of nowhere. So I think we need to ask and we need to answer the questions that come to us both from our children and from outside our church with one specific reason. We are in the day of atonement. We are in the final atonement. We are not in the darkness of the past history. 
We are not in the times of ignorance. We are in the times when light has been shed beyond anything that has ever been seen in human history. You know more about the great plan of salvation than Abraham ever did because we have history to look back on. You know what God's will is. We have, been, we have received so much truth from God's throne. What a tragedy it would be to say because there was a re, there, God allowed some things in the Bible, that's where I want to go. I want to find the very minimum I can do and still be saved. What a tragedy that would be. And we need to tell our friends and our children that because we live in the day of atonement, we're not just about going to heaven. We're about vindicating God and destroying Satan's credibility. We are here to get Satan off of this planet. We are here to tell the truth about God's way. And that is at a higher level. Yes, Martin Luther could teach predestination and infant baptism. Yes, he could have his tankard of ale every evening before he went to bed. But I cannot. Because I live in the day of atonement. I live in a time when all of the evidence must come to play at one time. That God's way works and Satan's way doesn't. What does it mean to live in the day of atonement? It's different. For the reason that our mission is different. We are not here just to get saved. We are here to prove that God, not Satan, is telling the truth. May God help us to be that generation that will end the great controversy. That all sin can be cleansed out of our hearts. So that all sin can be cleansed out of the heavenly sanctuary by God's grace. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.